my gosh. Hi. Hello. Welcome or welcome back to Modern Medio, the podcast. Indeed, indeed. I am Megan. And I'm Ella. It's a pleasure to speak to you guys today. Yes, after our two-week hiatus, though, if you were so compelled to check our guest episode out on Media Evil's podcast, which was available or is available on SoundCloud, we talked and went much, much deeper on Netflix's series Disenchantment. So if you're interested. Yeah. And also, Sarah if Decker is, you know, a queen in our minds. So yeah, it, so was, it was interesting to hear her speak. Yes, um, it was such a treat. She is so kind and nice. And I learned a lot in our conversation. Me too. I still have to <laughs> buy the book on, on on ale, pale ale and beer and all of that. Oh, yeah. I totally like forgot about that. Yeah, that was such a big part of it too. But today... Yeah, never mind that. <laughs> <laughs> we thought, well, what's a good way to come back to the podcast? What is... A fun way to jump back in. (laughs) (laughs) Emphasize the fun. (laughs) And so I, Megan, for those of you who are new, I'm currently in my first term of a PhD on medieval women and medievalism and horror, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I came across the 1971 film The Devils by Ken Russell, which is an infamous film banned Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. And I watched it, and it's such a wild ride, and it's available on archive.org, the yeah. um, uncut version, which mm-hmm. is quite uh, unique like, because quite a bit was cut. And even the BFI release is like a cut X-rated version, but this one is, I think it has all the scenes in it. Um, yeah. It may be missing one because I don't really recall it, but maybe my mind was just so blown. We'll get to that. But so yeah, today we're going to be talking about the devils. Yeah. Because we felt that in our conversations leading up to the episode, that though it takes place in the early modern time in the 17th century, so 1629 to 1634, give or take, uh, that's Mm -hmm. like the span of time, that it's about witchcraft. It's about mass hysteria. Plague is involved, the church, and as we've kind of talked about throughout our episode, that this is something that's often very considered medieval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, something so irrational and so unreasonable. Yeah, and it, this is not, as well yeah. as the fact that it also has unintentional but direct links to our course with Bob due to the fact that Derek Jarman was the set designer for this film. This was his very first one, and it's amazing. And you can definitely tell as well. Yes. I mean, I, I went into it knowing that, like, everything from you, Megan. But, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, this, I can definitely tell that this is the case. Um, yeah, I didn't know when I first started it. And I was like, who did the set designs on this? Because it's very anachronistic. It's very, like, 1970s uh, kind of just edgy, punk, queer. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And uh, I was like, this seems kind of familiar. And I'm also really digging this. And I was like, oh my God, it was Derek Jarman. Yeah. What? <laughs> so I, I actually have a question for you before we start. Had you heard of the film before? Or is there something that like through your research you came to discover? Um, this is something that I came to um, learn about through my research. I think it was kind of a throwaway 
film mention in an article or a book I read. Right. It might have been uh, Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And I was like, oh, that seems interesting and Googled it. And the more I kind of learned about it, I was like, the more I have to watch this yeah. film. And then trying to watch it on like Amazon, banned. Shutter, not really? there. It's banned on Amazon. Well, it's not banned, but like it's not there. Right, okay. uh, and then other things, and it's just not there. And so yeah. I kind of went down the rabbit hole and found it on archive.org. And it's the whole thing. Yeah. It's not the best quality of... It's uh, not too terrible, though. Like, if you've got, like, fast internet, it, it's kind of fine. Yeah, I mean, it's just not, like, you know... Cutting edge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, there's Spanish subtitles that you can't get rid of. I did find them so entertaining, though. I mean, I must admit, like, when I kind of got distracted a little bit, because, you know, it's quite a lot of screaming, so sometimes mm-hmm. my brain just shuts off, and I was, like, reading the subtitles in Spanish, and I was like, <laughs> Right, this is what's happening now. <laughs> um, yeah, I felt I was a little frustrated by the subtitles at points just because since the film is British, Ken Russell's British, they, the way that they speak sometimes is not the clearest. And so I wished that there were English subtitles just so that I could grasp yeah. what they were saying. Yeah, fair enough. But that's kind of just me. Uh, but yeah, the the Spanish subtitles also did add a bit of like a, a fun twist or flavor yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. it was a great, um, so like for the, the audience doesn't know this, but like Megan um, recommended the Mercy's book um, that came out in 2020, right? Or 2019, I think. I think it was either the very end of 2019 or very early 2020. Yeah. And, like, she recommended this this summer, unrelated to everything. She's like, so good. I don't know. You have to read it. Oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I bought it and then never read it. And then when we went into our hiatus, I was like, right, I'm going to read this book that Megan, like, recommended. And she recommended The Devils more or less at the same time, like, a couple of weeks ago. And so I read and watched both things. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel like I've learned so much. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, yeah, I didn't even realize that I was recommending these like witchcraft stories yep. to you and Inquisition-y vibes. Um, while you were speaking, I just Googled, yeah, 2020. It came out Janu- January 28th, so very early. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so for those of you who have not read or heard of The Mercies. So good. It's by the author uh, Kieran Millwood Hargrave. She's more traditionally a poet, which definitely comes through in her writing style. And this book is just extraordinary. It gets under your skin. It's a very slow burn. Mm. But you realize as you go through that you are getting tense and like anticipating what happens. Yeah. And um, it's, I just, I highly recommend the book because it's just so beautiful. And I agree with you completely. Like I, I find these kinds of books very difficult to engage with, and I had no problems with it. So, that's if great. You're not, if you're not sure that this is the type of thing for you, I, I still would give it a try. Yeah, like if you're at the bookstore, give the first because the kind of prologue section is like five pages or something. Give that a go, and if that captures you, get it. If not get it anyway yeah I think, I think you have to get to like I, I honestly think that for me it was after page 80 that like I was like I can't stop now I don't remember what part it was for me I just was invested and just briefly it's about um an, a real life event the Vardo storm which Vardo is a Norwegian island in the very very like north 
east portion, like way far up, like above Svalbard and stuff, this tiny little island. And um, in 1617, in the story of how widows of the men who die in the storm become victims of a witch hunt on this Norwegian island due to, you know, uh, religion trying to come in and everything. That's just so powerful. And the time it takes place, 1617, is very much situated in the devils, which we're talking about today, because that's the 1630s. Um, And we've also, with this, got the um, Aizan-Provence possessions that were taking place in 1611 in the south of France, as well as the Pendle witches in 1612 in England. So witchcraft, you know, 17th century throughout, because in the 1690s, of course, we had Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, just so brief, if you're kind of like, when and how? So none of this is even in the 1500s. This is all 1600 plus. I guess also with like, going, like the Salem witchcraft thing, um, I, I read, um, I came across it through Arthur Miller's rendition. Yeah, The Crucible. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that one thing that all of these events emphasize and like even um, the author of The Mercies points out is that it's very easy to analyze this mass hysteria and it's something that we still do and it's very interesting that we kind of appropriate it to the past when mm-hmm. it's actually something that we're still victims and perpetrators of. Exactly, definitely. Yeah, it's something that we take from such an exterior um, outside external perspective and it's like no we still have situations like this um you know in reading up for today there's an article on IndieWire that mm-hmm. that just the um, title and subtitle um so the devils is just as blasphemous body and relevant today as it was when it was banned in 1971 yeah and then the I subheading <laughs> subheading is ken russell's epic religious horror is a scathing critique on abuse of political power that new audiences will find prescient as ever in the age of Trump and being American and the kind of power dynamics of religion and government and the hysteria that kind of comes through from collisions about like abortion or right now the COVID pandemic and people being like, no, it's not going to get me and vice versa. You know, there it's a different type of hysteria quite often, but it's still the same thing or experience occurrence yeah Yeah. I think Foucault is a good person to read on this but I I just can't hack Foucault but I think if like I think he talks a lot about mass hysteria and its history so if the audience wants to know more about this I think he's a good author to research he is yes but very um you really have to put that attention and time yeah (laughs) definitely (laughs) Um, you could also go, I think this would be related in sociology. There's something known as sociophobics and the oh. things that trigger certain responses of like fear and terror and horror and related to that um, other kind of negative responses. And I think like mass hysteria or something would be related to that. It could be wrong. A very new term for me in my research, but it seems like it could potentially be yeah. connected yeah, so the devil's like, what is it? What is it about, right? Yeah. Questions. Let's delve into it. So Ken Russell's film is based off the play by John Whiting, as well mm. as, which is based itself, off the book, 
the nonfiction book by Algis Huxley called The Devils of Ludon, which is based off this real life occurrence in Ludon, France. Yeah. The storyline is a little convoluted. I don't know if you experienced that. I did. And actually, like, it was after watching it and through researching it, I was like, oh, all of these events are here. But I don't think I really grasped the fact that what it was trying to do throughout, you know? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad it wasn't just me. And even with like researching what happens in the film and then what happens in history, I still yeah. get kind of confused on who is who and who does what and when. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it definitely felt like a bit of a performance, didn't it? The film. There's yes, there's definitely a very kind of avant-garde or out there aspect that I quite enjoyed. I feel like if it was a bit more subtle or like not serious, you know, but the fact that we have this German just kind of in your face anachronistic bit, I feel like that was a really wonderful choice to have yeah. that. Um, and Russell was very intent on not having just another period piece film. He wanted something that was shocking on visually as well as like storytelling wise. I agree. Yeah, I think it, it worked really, really well. Um, but so, yeah, the film is primarily focused around the character of uh, this priest, Grenier, mm-hmm. who is performed by Oliver Reed, who I was like, oh my God, that's the guy from Gladiator. <laughs> um, not yeah. Russell Crowe, but he's the, um, he's like the Gladiator runner, the person that uh, like becomes friends with Russell Crowe's character and like was once a Gladiator and then runs his own Gladiator ring. Mm-hmm. Um, which he died filming that. He he passed away while filming Gladiator. Um, really? Yeah. So that's bad. Like he was able to do most of his scenes, but like his death scene was incorporated into the film because of the actual actor's death, um, rather than they had to kind of change the ending a little bit. Megan, you're such a like fountain of knowledge. I don't know <laughs> how you do it. I just am really into like film facts and always read the IMDb trivia. Okay. <laughs> words, that's where most of it comes from. So it could be wrong because I'm just basing off people's oh, stuff. But I mean, he is dead. So there's not. Dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's so Grandier is this kind of rock star priest in a way. Like yeah. he does what he wants and uh, he's Roman Catholic, but he doesn't believe in celibacy in the priesthood. Yeah. So he is known throughout Ludin as a womanizer, kind of like gets around, potentially fathered a child by some one of his friend's relatives. So this is kind of like a back current for this character of yeah. um, doing naughty things. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting because I feel like like watching the film before watching it, like learning about its history, mm-hmm. I didn't, I felt like, you know, they were trying to make a point of the fact that he wasn't, holy at all and he was sinful as well and so that devil was at work everywhere but it's interesting to know that you know yeah and like historically the real Urban Grandier was like known to be quite attractive quite charismatic so this you know like rock star or like attractive priest is not yeah a complete fabrication on behalf of Ken Russell and Yes, he's portrayed a certain way from the 1970s, right? With like the mustache and the hair. Yeah, yeah. And you can decide if you think that Oliver Reed is attractive attractive or not. not. (laughs) I mean, he's got this kind of like hyper-masculine 
energy to him. But yeah, I mean, piercing blue eyes, but he's not like a Paul Newman or something. You know, no, so it's like, I agree. there is a difference. And then the other kind of pivotal character in the film is uh, Sister Jean, yeah. who was the uh, historic figure. And yeah. she is the abbess of this convent of Ursuline nuns. Yeah. In the film, and I believe in the book, she's portrayed as hunchbacked, like due to scoliosis. I don't yeah. know historically if that's accurate or not. Yeah, I wanted to know that, like, um, <clears throat> because this is based in France, it reminded me of something. Montaigne, the famous essay, like, essay writer. Yeah. Whole section on, like monsters and perceived monsters and it usually was like human beings who were born with deformities or mm-hmm. deformed backs or um other kind of things and his whole essay was about how like there was a lot of mass hysteria because that lots of these people were killed yeah and his whole point was that like actually these weren't um monsters and that the human beings who thought they were monsters were the real monsters and so that's quite an interesting thing knowing that more or less it's around the same time yeah, no, definitely. And if she wasn't in real life hunchbacked, this is definitely playing on that because she is deformed and kind of creepy um, due to that and feels isolated. And so, yeah, that definitely feeds into the kind of monstrous or warped or twisted yeah. figure. But she becomes obsessed with Grandier by like seeing him just through a window because Ursuline nuns at this time were completely sequestered from their only access with the external world was like visitors outside and then the uh, priest that would come. So she becomes like obsessed with him and there are some really interesting scenes of like visions that she or daydreams that she has and like intense praying with the rosary that causes bleeding on her hands. And then she finds out that this other young girl, Madeline, young and pretty, who thought about joining the Ursulines, but then got seduced by Grandier, uh, ends up secretly marrying him. Yeah. And when Sister Jean finds out about this, like oh, jealousy... Yes, the green monster <laughs> just breaks loose and things get out of control really fast. Yeah. Based basically on her like unintentional, kind of like inadvertent claims that Grenier was a sorcerer yeah. and bewitching these women and sending demons. Also, this is something that Grenier's like enemies took mm-hmm. and ran with it. Really. Proportion. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's basically where the film like really just takes off and gets kind of confusing. And I don't know if you really want to like talk about the politics in it. I want to just get to the juicy bits personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I actually don't know about, much about uh-huh. the politics. I think that's uh-huh. something you can read about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but needless to say, that's kind of like a setup. That's also the first like 45 minutes of the film. Yeah. But it's fun. So let's start just with like... So the film opens with this performance of colorful drag by King Louis XIII, who enters the scene like a Venus de Milo. Yeah, I thought it was so fun. It was amazing. Um, Which is, uh, this has, if you're familiar with Jarman in any way, this is like Derek Jarman vomited all over it. (laughs) And then later I loved the scene where he's in like a white cowboy hat and he's shooting heretics in full body blackbird outfits. It's like the most random, the scene has significance for something in the film. Like maybe the walls around Ludon, which yeah. was very political. But he's just like, it's so comedic. And he's like, bye-bye, Blackbird. And it just, 
Loved it, it felt like a carnival scene, you know, like as you'd expect it to look like. I thought it was like very, very interesting in that kind of sense. Like, yeah, no, there's definitely this like sense of yeah, like grand spectacle and costume producing, and yeah, like the, the exactly the carnivalesqueness of mm-hmm. this, which you could also think metaphorically, right? Carnival has masks, and you hide behind certain masks and yeah. personas. Yeah. I, I, I found um the use of makeup very like I don't know if that was how people were made up back then but I found them kind of disturbing like they felt like aliens to the real quote-unquote real world oh I didn't really like clock that I'd have to you know rewatch, but that's very compelling because that is like a it's it's not making them unhuman, but perhaps it's emphasizing the like ugliness mm. of the humanity. I don't know. That's really yeah. interesting. I didn't notice that. I mean, yeah. certain figures, of course, like King Louis, definitely had lots of makeup. But when he comes in as in disguise as Duke Henri de Condé, and he's like brought in on like the the chaise and all of that, you know, and. He's like, so this is when the Ursuline nuns are locked up in the convent and experiencing like public exorcisms. And it, the, this is actually a good segue into just like, what the fuck? But <laughs> so King Louis is pretending to be this duke and he comes in, he's like, I have a holy relic that will exorcise these devils. And, you know, he has this beautiful gilded bejeweled box and hands it to the exerciser man whose name i is escaping me oh father barre who such good casting he's just like a demented yeah it was was, um it was kind of hard to watch i found in like like aside from like the highly sexualized bits and like you know like orgies and Mm -hmm. masturbation scenes and all that which were kind of a bit much and lots of screaming and all that but like that kind of that character was very like intense in a way that was a like very disturbing but like compelling in the same way yeah also he's his character to me felt like one of the most analogous to our times or I I recognized so much Mm. in that character of people that we like see today and figures that are truly terrifying yeah so and I mean he's perhaps that figure the most kind of aside from King Louis, the most like visually Jarman-esque where he wears like the mesh top and he has these kind of like John Lennon-esque glasses and the long shaggy, you know, late 60s, early 70s hair. It looks like he's wearing leather pants. I don't think he is, but just like very what? But then he's the professional witch hunter. But yes, King Louis brings this relic and Father Pierre Barre like takes them around right to all the women and they like calm down and then as if they've been cured and then Condé slash King Louis reveals that the case holding this relic is actually empty <gasps> and to me as a medieval it's, it's fascinating because this happened on occasion and there's so much debate about certain types of relic and whether or not they're true if there's actually something in there and so I just, even though this was meant for a comedic point, right? I just found it like a really fun, interesting little tidbit. Yeah. And then, of course, then hysteria booms after that scene. And once King Louis leaves, this is the scene that's infamously or notoriously known as the Rape of Christ. Yeah. 
That was very strange. <laughs> yeah. So basically you have like a bunch of naked nuns in this scene who are all quite young. And there was a lot of criticism about this in reading. We're like, of course, all these nuns are like young and gorgeous. But mm. in my reading, uh, historically, actually, the average age of these nuns was 25. So yeah. that's, of course, this is done, I think, more for kind of like the smuttiness. But there's actually like historic credence in that. Mm. But yeah, they're all just like running around and stroking candelabrums very sensually and licking the flames and the candle wax. Yeah. Pleasuring themselves and one another, tumbling around with the quote unquote exorcists. And then this giant crucifix. I mean, that thing I did in like 12 feet or something like that gets taken off the wall. Yeah. I don't know how they managed that because that must have been so heavy and they must have hurt themselves if they like, actually yeah. tried to do that, you know? And, you know, falls to the ground and these women start enacting their pleasures on the figure of Christ. So like humping and using projecting parts of the crucifix for internal female pleasure and all sorts of things. It's just like it's wild. Yeah. It really is wild. I like that we agree on this because I feel like often we have like diverging perspectives and things, but on this one we're both agreeing. <laughs> yeah. I also am just like I when I was watching it initially and since I've been trying to think of films where you know like a massive orgy ensues and I've never seen anything like it that yeah. I can think of you know in films they talk about orgies and oh there's one tickling in my mind I mean I guess there are some in like tv shows you know where people this is usually like Victorian era where they walk around and are orgying you know but this one because it had the crazed element to it just felt so much more of like an assault on your senses yeah at least for for me the other ones are always kind of like much more sensual and like ooh orgy and they're usually on drugs or drunk and it's like artistic and Ken Russell definitely has an artistic eye but this is just like bombardment like yeah. after bombardment and I think it captures that feeling very well of like ah make it stop but also yeah. like what's happening and ah and but yeah. like done well in a way this is going to sound like <laughs> fucked up not where it's like don't make it stop but you're like what is happening and I can't look away because what is happening and like it's different than at least for me like rape revenge films right where like I spit on your grave the notorious one or last house on the left where the I guess perhaps because the salt is real in regards to violation of their bodies whereas this is a violation of a statue but like those are more disturbing than this. This was disturbing, but also grotesquely entertaining. Yeah. I do not know if you agree with that. I agree. But like, I, I found that like in these very like intense scenes, I couldn't really like stay focused that well. After a while, like my mind was like, I need a bit of a break from it, you know? Also, I mean, this film is like two hours long, two and a half hours long. And this happens in the later act. So at that point, you're also kind of like... Oh my God. <laughs> Did you understand speaking of like the nuns? Cause this is before, this is like when they get, this leads into their being sequestered. So the nuns were going to be like burnt. Yeah. Alive in kind of like a plague pit and a mass grave outside of the town. Yeah. I saw that. I was thinking, you know, like my understanding of it. Cause like the, 
uh, nun John, mm-hmm. she to me like because she was a redhead and like there's a whole scene where she gets possessed I think by the devil or like I, I it was one of the first scenes and I kind of found that very confusing if that makes sense yeah so I read Jean and this has been like a lot of what the analysis of the film is about is like repressed sexual energy and attraction so the first one of the first scenes when she's kind of like contorting around she's actually I mean it could look like she's possessed and this also kind of crosses the line but I think she was experiencing like orgasm due to praying and thinking about because I think this is also when she has this uh the daydream with Grandier yeah um and women in the middle ages at least experienced mass ecstasy when either receiving the Eucharist or praying upon Christ. Oh, and okay. I didn't know that. Sometimes were like denied the cup, so denied the blood of Christ because they would like attempt to spill the wine because they'd be like too excited and shaking. So this also related a lot to the like medieval uh, philosophy that the Eucharist, the bread is actually part and whole entirety of Christ, therefore containing the blood of Christ. Very complex, but if this is something you're interested in, I would recommend historian Caroline Walker Benham's notorious and highly influential text, Holy Feast, Holy Fast, that looks at women's relationship of um, their bodies and eating with the church. And a lot of this has to do with the Eucharist and yeah, like mass ecstasy of the women and visions that they experienced. Yeah. Okay, um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. And that was one thing that I found really kind of compelling historically with this is that a lot of the women in the Loudon possessions, as this is known kind of historically, were discussing that they were seeing, you know, visions of recently deceased confessors or experiencing these sites, right? And... It's just, it it also shows how tricky visions are because we also have saints and revered holy women who experienced visions and, you know, became beloved because of that. But others are like, oh, they're crazy or this is mass hysteria. And again, this is later than the Middle Ages. So there's a whole background that we don't have the chance to get into right now of changing perspectives about this. Um, this is taking place, you know, during Reformation times. I mean, that's a huge anchor in this film as well, is Protestants or the Huguenots versus the Catholic Church and the splitting and rifting in that. I found that really, like, provoking as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because clearly, at least to me, as as she's cast, historically, who knows, but Sister Jean is a bit unhinged. She is very susceptible to extreme emotions and... Apparently, I haven't read the Algis Huxley book. It's on my list now. Um, but in his narrative, he plays with ideas of multiple personality disorder. Mm. He, like, touches upon it. And I don't know if it's with her, but she seems like the character that would be the most Likely obvious. Be like that, yeah. I want, that's, like, interesting. I'm not trying to pathologize her history. No, 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 no. I know what you mean, though. But, yeah, just, like, really compelling and then we also have her at the end of the film right so Grandier is sentenced to death after this like very it you feel like the play and the court scenes you know where he's like 
speechifying really loudly and powerfully, which is always kind of satisfying. You know, you can be like, oh, wow, yeah, he is a great like stage actor, but it had that vibe to it. So he's um, sentenced to death to be burnt at the stake, which the, in the film, you know, where the executioner was like, I'm going to strangle you first and then burn you. That's historically accurate. It was an act of mercy to hang or strangle someone so that they're mm. not burnt alive and like the torment of that. But in the film, Barre gets too excited. And I think the figure he's based off historically, same thing happened where they decided to just light the pyre. At the end of the film, Sister Jeanne is like sitting in this kind of cell. She's giving herself a um, cleansing intravaginal holy water kind of like enema sort of thing, a douche yeah. in a way. Because that was one of the things. So this also, of course, like intervaginal penetration, right? And at the first time it happens, it's like horrific and it's very much like a rape. But now she's, it's kind of like, oh, she's still sexually depraved, whatnot. Um, At the end, she's in this room doing this douche intravaginal masturbation, basically. And the character Mignon, who was like, he's kind of like the skinny, weaselly, weird looking guy. (laughs) It's so horrible. But at the end, thinks that, oh, perhaps Grenier is innocent, brings her this charred femur or tibia, another one, charred bone to her. And as he leaves, she's kind of considered to be like completely broken, right? And she begins masturbating with the bone. And this is like, you know, towards the very end of the film. And then Madeline, remember, she's the one that married Grenier. Yeah walks over the rubble of the city because the city's walls were blown up. Which is also like historically bound, really. Yeah, that's like an actual controversy in the film uh, because Cardinal Richelieu wanted all the city walls throughout France to be like taken down so that they could concentrate the power of uh, the Catholic Church. But the Protestants often wanted to keep the walls up to protect themselves from, you know, mercenaries outside the cities and just the sense of safety. And at the beginning of the film, the Huguenots or the Protestants and the Catholics are coexisting quite peacefully, you know, but the king and the power want to do things that are not the best for the locals. But the king had promised the mayor, governor, whoever was in charge of Ludon, that he would not blow up the walls. But then that figure dies. So that's Grenier's person in power. So that's why this is like such a power hungry at the center of this film so at the end right Grenier's killed so his word doesn't hold anymore so yeah then the walls blow up and the people run out and crawl over the dusty rubble yeah it was a very intense experience I, I would say for sure yeah it it's just it is wild and I have so I'm so curious about like how it would be responded to if it came out today I reckon you know it'd still be banned yeah, I think that it uh, as well. I think it would still ruffle a lot of feathers. Yeah, it was interesting to read. It's like like the history of the film where it won like best director in one of the I think it was a British BFI maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, the general criticism was so severe that it didn't really go much further than that. Yeah, and I mean it's completely of course you know by the the vatican like this is not uh, they did credit again the like visual artistry of ken russell but they're like no and apparently oliver reed and uh redgrave so the one that plays sister agnes 
were like told by the Vatican that they were like in the next three years, don't step foot in Italy because which is crazy. Yeah. Mm. And the Vatican also demanded that screenings at the Venice film festival be canceled at this film because like when it first was released for purity's sake and everything. Oh, sorry. I was wrong. It won the best director at the Venice film festival. So I wonder if they showed it. Not the BFI. Perhaps they did like a primary screening. And oftentimes I think films can be shown more than once. So maybe that right. was okay. the deal. I don't yeah. Yeah. really know. But yeah, I just, I think it's kind of unfortunate that something like this would still be so shocking today. Like if it came out, because I think that the late 60s and early 70s like pushed so many boundaries. And we have some really like iconic films out of that. Like a few months after this was released, A Clockwork Orange was released which is another highly banned, controversial film. I haven't watched it, have you? Yes, I've like written papers on it and stuff, which is Stanley Kubrick, you know, based off the Burgess book, Clockwork Orange. Okay. Um, Would you recommend? Yes, I'd recommend the book and the film. Okay. Again, another very like intense film, very extreme. But I just, I guess for me, like these films gave you a response, like you felt something, it shocked you, it disturbed you, it was very like raw whereas right now we're so saturated with like superhero films and they're really boring aren't they like it's all I feel like this Netflix and Amazon and all of the main ones nowadays just find the same types of films and series yeah I mean there's occasional ones that slip through that are quite good but yeah it just or you know like certain types of dramas like Mm. you're most likely going to you know what kind of drama you're signing up for. If it's like a police procedural or mm-hmm. serial killer hunting, or uh, I've noticed that there's in like horror slash psychological thrillers, Munchausen by proxy. So like when moms try to control children um, to like feed their own needs, which is very rarely diagnosed, has shown up in so many like series and movies lately. And I'm like, why this feel like that a recent film came out run I don't know I haven't watched it have you yeah it was good I enjoyed it but it's the same yeah story I mean the the thing I really applaud about that film is that the uh, main actress she's wheelchair bound in the film and in real life she's wheelchair bound as well so bringing in people who have like actual disabilities to portray those disabilities uh, rather than uh, you know hiring a renowned actor and asking them to act that which is just like there's plenty of talented actors and actresses that can play those characters so yeah the devils i mean we've barely scraped the surface but there's <laughs> it's on archive.org watch it um read up on the devils of ludon by Algis huxley the ludon possession it's wild and again though it's not medieval it is such an example of what people think the medieval is. And I think that because it's anachronistically portrayed because of Jarman, it really challenges that, right? Like these Baroque effects force you to kind of experience it differently rather than being a period piece. And you can actually see a lot of parallels to even our times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think 
with all of these things, there there is like kind of a point in looking at it in an in an anachronistic way because mm-hmm. that kind of behavior can be spotted, unfortunately, still today. So it's important to kind of identify it. You know, if if anything else, if this is kind of if we just use this for the purpose of like looking at a way of behave like a behavioral pattern, mm-hmm. then that's probably a very good thing. Yeah, and just like power dynamics and those in power who will manipulate and use others to achieve their own ends, right? Like the ends justify yeah. the means in a way and damn the victims. So yeah, that's our little spiel on the film, The Devils. Yeah. Woo-woo. So if you've enjoyed this episode and want to know what we've talked about in previous episodes, please know that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, audible basically anywhere you would be looking for a podcast just type modern medieval podcast we're also on social media where you can interact with us should you wish to please interact with us we are on facebook we've got both a page and a group just type modern medieval podcast you can find us on instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval and you can email us if you'd wish to just type modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com yes and then finally we have a twitter which you can find us under the handle at medieval underscore modern where we post updates about our episodes and little tidbits here and there and yeah please reach out to us yeah we love to hear from you and our music our little intro and outro is composed by trothgard t-r-o-t-h-g-a-r-d who is also known as joe burton he came on our episode and talked with us yeah. a while amazing ago. episode yeah he's a lovely person and you can find his music online if you were just to type in like Trothgard music it should come up quite easily so yeah until next time i'm megan and i'm ello and this is modern medieval the podcast <laughs>